Poverty wages, racist police brutality, confrontation with China. Last week was filled with examples of the utter failure of this system. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's March 16th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent program by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. This Wednesday is our monthly seminar, which is a conversation with Brian about the pressing issues in the country and the world. Join our Patreon to receive an invitation. We can do it with you, but not without you. I'm Walter Smolarik here with Esther Iverum and our host, Brian Becker. Nicole Roussel is traveling today. Esther Iverum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Today, we discuss the latest developments in the trial of Derek Chauvin, actions to mark the anniversary of Breonna Taylor's murder, the Biden administration's latest maneuvers against China, the continuing fight to win a living wage, and more. So Brian, this week marks some very important anniversaries in recent history. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Right. And Esther and Walter, uh, again, we are bringing our audience another exciting week packed with news, analysis, history, high quality programming brought to our listeners. And we present it from the viewpoint of socialists and socialism. And again, for those who rely on the show, like the show, please support the show by becoming a patron. How people hear the news of today, and this is our in the news segment or the news of yesterday, meaning not just yesterday in the literal sense of yesterday, but in the sense of our recent history, how they hear the news, how they interpret the news, how the news is presented, has in fact a huge impact on the shaping of political consciousness and political perceptions. The mainstream capitalist media presents itself as news outlets, but they should be understood for what they really are. Instruments of capitalist propaganda designed to fortify and support the existing social order. Today and this week are anniversaries, Walter, as you mentioned, anniversaries of a sort. They are morbid, gross, tragic anniversaries that need to be properly understood, truthfully told, remembered for what they really are, but the capitalist corporate-owned media is either twisting or even ignoring these events, events that were in fact crucial to American history and to the shaping of political consciousness in the United States. On this day, on this very day, March 16th, 1968, 
U.S. soldiers dispatched on a search and destroy mission massacred more than 500 unarmed villagers in the Vietnamese hamlet of My Lai. That's in South Vietnam. It was in South Vietnam, and My Lai was considered a stronghold of the National Liberation Front. This huge massacre was covered up for a long time, and it finally came out because of complaints from rank-and-file soldiers who were there who were upset that General William Westmoreland, then the commander, the commander-in-chief of American forces in Vietnam, initially saluted the soldiers who carried out the massacre for their, quote, outstanding action. That's end quote. Today, most young people in the United States may not have even heard of the Miele massacre because, in fact, the media does not talk about it. Again, why is this not the front page every year on March 16th so the American people can learn the lesson of what happened at Millet. Old men, young men, old women, young women, children were machine gunned to death. They were bayoneted. The women were gang raped and mutilated. And then they were burned. Many burned alive. Lieutenant William Kelly was the only soldier who was ever convicted for the Miele massacre. He did not deny that he massacred Vietnamese civilians, but his defense was that he was following orders, which was undoubtedly true. William Kelly was a war criminal following the orders of other war criminals, and their crime was covered up by the war criminals in the Pentagon brass, including the highest parts of the brass. But these crimes must be understood in context. The Malay massacre, like so many other massacres in Vietnam, was a massacre, a war crime inside a bigger war crime, which is the war itself. The U.S. went to war against Vietnam, waged a war that took the lives of more than two million Vietnamese people, defoliated the country with chemical weapons like Agent Orange, And all of it was designed to stop Vietnam from becoming an independent, unified, and socialist country. That was the sole purpose of the U.S. war in Vietnam. In addition to the Vietnamese who died, 58,000 Americans died. And their names are up on the Vietnam Memorial Wall here in Washington, D.C., Some of the anti-war veterans from that time said if you actually created a wall with the names of the two million Vietnamese who died, the entire part of Washington, D.C., the entire federal section, and going far beyond into the state of Virginia or Maryland would be consumed by this wall with all of its victims. And yet this anniversary is not remembered. One other thing about the Malay massacre that I think it's important to bring out, is that it happened when the government of the United States was led by a Democrat, not a Republican. Lyndon Johnson was the president of the United States. By comparison to Richard Nixon or those who came after him, LBJ was a liberal. On his watch, the most progressive U.S. legislation ever was adopted, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the adoption of Medicare in 1964, 
and of course the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Here you had a liberal bourgeois politician engaged in an imperialist war against the people of Vietnam, a criminal war, the logic of which was to allow American troops to carry out endless war crimes. You might ask, what happened to the killers in the Malay massacre? Well, after it was revealed and after one, Lieutenant William Kelly was arrested, there was a mass movement in the United States led by the right wing and orchestrated by the Pentagon to free Lieutenant William Kelly. People might think of the 1960s as when the left was on the rise. Well, that's true. The anti-war movement was strong. The civil rights movement was strong. But so was the right-wing fascist movement in the United States, again, orchestrated by the Pentagon and by sectors of industry, including big oil. William Kelly was the only soldier convicted for the slaughter in Millet. Ultimately, he was sentenced to life in prison, but he served three days in jail because Richard Nixon, who became president a year later in 1969, ordered his sentence reduced. Colin Powell was at that time a 31-year-old Army major serving as an assistant chief of staff of operations for the American division, and he was charged with investigating the letter sent by upset rank-and-file GIs who said this was a massacre, not an outstanding action. In his report, Powell wrote, quote, in direct refutation of this portrayal, is the fact that relations between the American division soldiers and the Vietnamese people are excellent. That's right. That was Colin Powell, then 31, responding to rank-and-file GIs who were saying, no, this was a war crime. And Colin Powell, then 31 years old, said, no, our relations with the people in Vietnam are excellent. In May 2004, Powell, when he was then George W. Bush's Secretary of State, And after he had gone to the United Nations to make the case for war against Iraq, he, when asked by Larry King, said, quote, I mean, I was in a unit that was responsible for Malay. I got there after Malay happened. So in war, these sorts of horrible things happen every now and again, but they are still to be deplored. Again, most people in the United States today don't know about the Malay massacre, because the corporate-owned media won't talk about it. There's another anniversary, Walter, as you mentioned, exactly 35 years after the Malay massacre, the U.S. invaded the country of Iraq, and there were many massacres in Iraq as well. There was the Haditha massacre, which was a series of killings carried out by U.S. Marines on November 19, 2005, in which a group of U.S. Marines killed 24 unarmed Iraqi civilians in the city of Haditha in the western province of Al-Anbar. Among the dead, just like in Malay, were men, women, elderly people, and children as young as one years old who were shot multiple times at close range while unarmed. Some of the young girls were raped and mutilated before being killed. On June 17, 2008, six defendants from the Haditha massacre had their cases dropped, and the seventh was found not guilty. The exception was former Staff Sergeant, now Private Frank Woodrich. He was convicted of a single count of negligent 
dereliction of duty on January 24, 2012. He received for his killings, the only one who was found guilty of anything, a rank reduction and pay cut, but he avoided jail time. One can only imagine how the Iraqi people who knew full well about what happened in Haditha and in the trial felt when the prosecution by the U.S. military ended with none of the Marines sentenced to incarceration. And then, of course, there was the Nisor Square massacre in 2007 when employees of the mercenary Blackwater Security Consulting Agency, a private military contractor, those mercenaries murdered, shot to death, 17 Iraqi civilians in Nisar Square. They shot 20 other people who survived. They were convicted, but right before he left office, Donald Trump pardoned all of these killers. So we can see that American recent history is filled with war crimes. The American media talks all the time about what China is doing and the atrocities of China or what Iran is doing. It's time for the American people to understand what is really going on, that the U.S. government and the corporate-owned media that function as an echo chamber for the capitalist imperialist system are distracting and diverting attention away from the crimes that the American people should be most focused on, which are the crimes committed by the government that speaks in their name. As we have been telling our audience from the beginning of this month, we are devoting all of the Thursday segments of the socialist program. That's where we do the segment called The Real Story to an in-depth examination of the U.S. wars in the Middle East. We started with an examination of Syria. Last week, we talked about debates within the U.S. anti-war movement leading up to the Iraq war. This Thursday, we're going to be spending the full show with anti-war Iraq war veteran Mike Preisner talking about the war in Iraq, what actually happened, the things that American people, again, 18 years later, actually don't know much about or anything. And we're going to talk about it from the perspective of GIs who went to the war believing in the American government and came back as anti-war revolutionaries. Anyway, again, what we remember from history, even recent history, not only from today, but from, quote, yesterday, has a big impact in shaping political consciousness. Esther, I want to talk about some of the other big stories, of course. And again, they're not disconnected from what we just talked about. The Malay Massacre was 1968. That was March in 1968. Dr. Martin Luther King was killed three weeks later, April 4th, 1968, on the eve of what he had planned, which was the Poor People's March and Occupation of Washington, D.C. Dr. King was making the argument as he came out courageously against the war in Vietnam, that you can't have a war in Southeast Asia, a war that spent and cost trillions of dollars, and at the same time, pursue the so-called war on poverty. He said, you can't have both. And Dr. King was demanding that the country actually declare war on poverty. That was the point of the Poor People's Campaign. And here we are all these years later, and the Poor People's Campaign is back, and it's organizing. 
And you were there yesterday with some of the organizers of the Poor People's Campaign still demanding a war against poverty, demanding an end to injustice and inequality, and also demanding peace. Right, Brian and Walter. I was fortunate to be able to catch organizers and activists with the Poor People's Campaign as they rallied in front of the Wilson Building, which is like D.C.'s version of City Hall. And they were a part of a nationwide effort on Monday. The Poor People's Campaign holds something called Moral Mondays, and they've been doing this for years. And yesterday they used that weekly action to go to state capitals around the country to keep up the pressure on the Biden administration to enact major permanent legislation during his first 100 days. Many of the activists you know, referred to the COVID relief package, this $1.9 trillion package, and they wanted to emphasize the fact that while some of these measures may help working families, that they need permanent legislation, that working people, poor people in this country need permanent legislation and not these temporary measures that are included in that $1.9 trillion package. And so some of the 14 points that they mentioned, you know, in their demands include enacting comprehensive and just COVID-19 relief that provides free testing, treatment, vaccines, and direct payments to the poor, guaranteeing quality health care for all, regardless of pre-existing conditions, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, updating the poverty measure, guaranteeing quality housing for all, enacting a federal jobs program to build up investments, infrastructure, public institutions, climate resilience, energy efficiency, and socially beneficial industries and jobs in poor and low-income communities, and redirecting the bloated Pentagon budget toward these priorities as matters of national security. And so that last point ties directly to what you were talking about in terms of so much of the public infrastructure, the public tax dollars going to these wars, these endless wars. And the last figure I heard from some activists at another protest was that this is up to 65% now of the discretionary budget going to military, what they call defense, but it's not really defense. It's just the military industrial complex. So we have a brief clip. This is Liz McNichol speaking outside the Wilson Building in Washington, D.C. These 14 policy priorities are constitutionally consistent, morally defensible, and economically sane. They come out of the lives, struggles, agency, and insights of the 140 million and their moral, economic, and legal allies. And... The other thing I want to say, just observing this whole rollout of this COVID-19 relief package, is that while the Democrats are literally on tour right now to kind of sell the American people the package and tout its benefits and what it can do, there are people like Lindsey Graham and other Republicans putting forth a really twisted message around what is happening for relief for working and poor people in this country. So, for example, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina went on television, I believe Fox News, basically putting out this poison pill about benefit to black farmers, black farmers that have been stripped of their land, had their land stolen, had their loans denied over decades, and basically said that, you know, why should black farmers have this benefit after being denied and being discriminated against for decades? 
And also, I've heard this talking point that basically Black people are getting too much and that why should we pay for their children to have child tax credits? And, you know, I don't know who the we is, but it's couched as if not all people of all colors are going to benefit from the COVID relief package and there's just Black and brown people. So it's a message that's very divisive and it's really creating a wider division among people right now, among working people, and that's being intentionally created. Walter, the Poor People's Campaign is right. There should be massive cuts to the U.S. military budget. I would start with the number 100% myself. The closing of all U.S. military installations around the world, none of those installations are being used to defend the American people or the American homeland. All of it is for aggression. And here we are, we keep talking about the fact that the U.S. government is addicted to war, that the Poor People's Campaign, Dr. King, the people representing the 140 or 150 or 160 million, almost one out of every two Americans who are either in poverty or near poverty, demanding that money be used to end poverty in the United States, which is achievable. But then when you look at U.S. foreign policy, you can also see that that's not really at all in the sort of go forward program of Biden and the U.S. government, just like with Trump. The attacks on China growing, the U.S. military reorienting for global war against China, and they intend to start this war in the South China Sea, by the way. We'll talk a little bit about what the real strategy is, but Secretary of Defense Austin and Secretary of Defense Blinken are making their tour to Asia. They sound like, I don't know, Richard Nixon's Cold Warriors, Donald Trump's Cold Warriors. From that point of view, from the point of view of what's going on inside the U.S. government, inside the military establishment, inside the foreign policy establishment, they're preparing for more war, not to divert money from the Pentagon budget to help people. I mean, it's such a clear indictment of the system. It's an obvious statement of the priorities of the people who run this country and who run this economy, that there seems to be a completely endless, limitless supply of money to buy guns, bombs, missiles, tanks, implements to destroy cities, to destroy factories, to destroy infrastructure, and to kill huge numbers of people, as has happened in the last you know, 10, 20 years under the war on terror, and will continue under this new Pentagon doctrine of great power competition uh, against China. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. The people in power, the politicians, none of them really even seem to ask questions about the military budget. I mean, it's completely unsupervised. It's $700 billion officially on the books, but really more like a trillion dollars when you add it all together, all the different hidden pieces of war spending in the US budget. These are sums of money that are doled out every year for destruction, but could have such an enormous transformative effect on society in the United States, solving huge social problems like hunger, like homelessness. Poverty could absolutely be eliminated by redirecting this money. So yeah, I mean, every single year, the people who run this country, the ruling elite, choose not to do that. Instead, they choose to funnel ever-increasing sums of money into their war machine. The commander of U.S. military forces in the Pacific region has submitted a request, in fact, to Congress. This came on March 1st for $27.3 billion in new anti-China spending. Admiral Philip Davidson, who is an anti-China fanatic, leads what is now called the Indo-Pacific Command, made up of, get this, 
380,000 military and civilian personnel in the pay of the Pentagon and a vast array of air, land, and sea weaponry. It is now the largest of the 11 commands, the Pentagon commands, and it spans the globe and outer space. These are the enforcers of what might be called the most far-flung empire in history. In October 2020, I'm quoting in an article from Liberation News, Admiral Davidson stated, quote, I believe China is the strategic threat of the century to the United States, but really certainly to the entire world. And now what they're doing, Esther and Walter, is creating what's called a first island chain. They're taking the money that they're requesting, this $27 billion, that's on top of the existing $738 billion for one year for the Pentagon budget. They're going to be building these super weapons, these missile sites in all of the islands that are on the eastern side and southern side of China. So if you took a map and looked at the Pacific Ocean along the South China Sea, the East China Sea, and took a red marker as has been done, and you can see it in this Liberation News article, it goes from all the way down to the tip of Southeast Asia, all the way up to the furthest northernmost part of the Pacific, and then over to Alaska. This is the first island chain where the U.S. will, according to Admiral Davidson, place highly survivable precision strike networks along this island chain featuring increased quantities of ground-based weapons. And he says these networks must be operationally decentralized and geographically distributed along the Western Pacific Islands. That means they are preparing for a war with China, that should China strike back at any of them, that these decentralized missile areas, which are, again, stretched from the north to the south part of the Pacific, the entire Pacific, will be highly survivable and able to operate in a decentralized way, meaning to strike back. So the military calculation, I believe, is this. The Pentagon is, in fact, planning for a war with China. Okay, people think, no, how could that be? China's a nuclear power. That will be the end of humanity. But the the maniacs, the lunatics like Davidson in the Pentagon, they're thinking of it differently because they're spinning out all of these war game contingencies. They're thinking, look, if we forward base our missiles with precision missiles that are highly survivable all along China's eastern coast, we can contain China. And if there's a military conflict, which they're planning for in that area, China won't escalate. It won't go beyond the conflict in the South and East China Sea, because then China realizes there will be mutually assured destruction in the form of a a nuclear exchange between these two nuclear powers. So the U.S. can kind of play chicken and call China's bluff by engaging in military conflict in the South and East China Sea. Now, the reason why that's important is that 50% of the world's economic trade comes through that part of the world, the Pacific Ocean. And that's where a great deal of China's export-oriented economy transfers goods, products, commodities to the rest of the world for sale. This is how the Pentagon planners are actually thinking. And Esther, when you hear Blinken and Austin's statements, 
we have to take it seriously. Yes, Brian. And the statements that they've made are basically continuing the very belligerent tone of the Trump administration. Biden's foreign policy doesn't seem to be veering very far from Trump's, even though they said that they were going to have this new start or this new policy. And in addition to boxing in China militarily, they are obviously trying to, as you said, impact China's rise economically. The fact that China is surpassing the United States in many technologies, including robotics and AI, artificial intelligence. And it seems that they can't stop China's rise economically just through what they call the free trade and the fair market and the open market. So they are basically using their military and their stranglehold on the institutions like the IMF and the World Bank to pressure countries from partnering with China and to stay in the U.S. camp. Yeah, Walter, I think Esther is 100% correct about that. China isn't actually a threat to the American people. It's just the U.S. doesn't feel it's going to win in the economic competition with China. So it's doing the old thing. It's resorting to military measures to stop an economic competitor, but it has to frame it in the sort of rationale of defense or that China is a big threat. Let's get you having the final word on this topic. Yeah, well, that's completely right. I mean, if you're the owner of a major corporation, if you sit on the board of directors of a bank, the world economy is indeed a zero-sum game. And so this logic makes sense to you, right? I mean, you want to control the market. You want to be able to exploit the labor and resources of the whole world, including China. And you don't want any other economic competitors to have a chance to take your spot at the top of the food chain. And so you call up your friends in the Pentagon, you call up your friends in the White House, and then these strategies get developed, right? I mean, China is clearly the country that poses a threat to the U.S. stranglehold on the world economy. And then military and foreign policy comes afterwards in a fundamental way, not to minimize the importance of the Pentagon planners or or the politicians. But for working people in the United States, I don't think that same zero-sum logic applies at all. I mean, there's no reason whatsoever that the Chinese people emerging from poverty, which is the goal of the Chinese government, I mean, it's been their stated goal this entire time. They're not hiding anything. China's goal is to make sure that their people have a decent standard of living commensurate with what the wealthy countries in the world have. It's an understandable, reasonable desire. That does not have to come at the expense of U.S. workers. I mean, the people making sure that U.S. workers are poor, like Esther was talking about in our discussion with the Poor People's Campaign, are the politicians who refuse to take measures to make sure that poverty is eliminated here in the United States. The enemies of U.S. workers are not in China. They're not in any other country, actually. They sit in Wall Street boardrooms. Indeed. And I said, Walter, you were going to have the final word on this, but I, in fact, am going to take the final word. 40 years ago, the Chinese government opened up, meaning it allowed foreign direct investment into its country. China was very, very poor, had hundreds of millions of people who were in extreme destitute poverty. China had been strangled by the Western imperialist countries. So its earlier economic advantage, and it was really the leading economy in the world 250 years ago, but that had changed. And so China opened up for foreign direct investment. Now, the way you would think of it now, given the American corporate media propaganda, 
Somehow China put a gun to the head of all of these American corporations and insisted that they come to China and invest there, that insisted on having them close their factories in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Illinois, in Ohio, and move to China. Well, no, that's not what happened. China opened up and these capitalists and corporate barons said, oh, wait, we can make a lot more money by taking our factories to China paying Chinese workers just a fraction of what unionized workers would make in the United States, and we will make super profits. And that's what happened. They made super profits. The American workers became unemployed. The industrial heartland became the Rust Belt. But the American corporations, they did very, very, very well. Then, to their surprise, China, instead of simply being like the place where low-wage work was a constant source of super exploitation for Western capitalism, learn the technology, advance the technology, develop their own industrial capacity from basically learning the techniques that have been dominated by Western monopolies, and China rose, and it became a major economic power. So instead of being a neo-colonial sort of offshore for American capitalist corporations, it grew economically. And that's China's unforgivable sin, that China didn't remain like a neo-colony, that China, in fact, was able to use those resources to develop itself. And I think for the American workers, we need to tell ourselves and tell our co-workers, tell them this basic message. The enemy is at home. The capitalist corporations that laid you off, that closed your factories, they weren't Chinese, they were Americans. And you and we have more in common with the workers in China than we do with the American capitalists, that this kind of poisonous nationalism where we're told we are all one country, we're united, we're one country, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, no less, that we have to stand together against the Chinese threat. No, the real threat comes from a new possible war with a major power that would be a tragedy and a catastrophe for people everywhere. Also, we can add this, that recently, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said as much. There's this brief clip with him really describing China, and I think that you can hear the clear difference between what is a military issue and what's an economic one. China is the only country with the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to seriously challenge the stable and open international system. All the rules, values and relationships that make the world work the way we want it to, because it ultimately serves the interests and reflects the values of the American people. He makes it really clear that they are concerned about China as an economic power and that they're couching again that concern and that alarm over China's rise economically in these other terms that involve human rights and China posing some type of military threat, which we know it does not. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Let's turn to, we started the show talking about anniversaries, the Iraq war, the anniversary of Malay massacre, but there's another important anniversary, Esther, the killing of Breonna Taylor. There are demonstrations about her killing one year later. And of course, On May 25th will be the one-year anniversary of the brutal, nonchalantly brutal murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. Chauvin's trial is going on. Let's just spend a couple minutes before we go on to talk about both Breonna Taylor and an update on the Chauvin trial. 
So, Brian and Walter, the jury selection in the murder of George Floyd was interrupted Monday as Chauvin's lawyers asked that the trial be delayed and asked again that the judge, Peter Cahill, consider moving the trial out of Minneapolis to another venue. Chauvin's lawyers told the judge that the $27 million civil settlement with the family of George Floyd approved by the Minneapolis City Council, I think on Friday, would make it difficult for Chauvin to get a fair trial in the city. So in the end, Judge Cahill said that he would consider the delay and continue seating the jury, which as of Monday included nine people with five white people, one multiracial person, three black people, and one person described by the Associated Press as Hispanic. And so the jury selection is very high profile and somewhat contentious with all kinds of issues being raised about, you know, if black people are honest about the live reality with the police, if Black people will be regarded as biased in sitting as jurors in the case. And the trial is ongoing, as we've discussed in recent weeks, at a time when we're marking several anniversaries that led up to last year's uprising against racism. And we discussed how Ahmaud Aubrey was shot to death by vigilantes, including an ex-cop on February 23rd of last year. And on Saturday, March 13th, thousands of people rallied and marched around the country to mark the one-year anniversary or one year after Breonna Taylor, an emergency medical technician, was shot to death by police after a no-knock raid in her home in Louisville, Kentucky. And in Louisville on Saturday, at least 500 people, some estimates are much higher, marched in Louisville, and there were separate actions around the country, as I mentioned, and also here in D.C., scheduled at Malcolm X Park and Black Lives Matter Plaza. And we have a brief clip of Breonna Taylor's mother speaking to CNN. Never get to a point where I'm over what happened to her. Tamika Palmer says she will mark the one-year anniversary of her daughter Breonna Taylor's death by attending a rally Saturday to remind people justice has not been served. It's been a year for people, but... Every day has been March the 13th for me still. Every day? Every day. March 13th, 2020, the day Taylor was killed during a botched police raid at her apartment. It'll always be that sense of anger because you know that she should be here. None of the officers who raided Taylor's apartment have been charged in her death. Instead, a grand jury brought charges of felony one endangerment against one of them, Brett Hankinson, for firing through Taylor's wall into a neighboring apartment. The state's attorney general defended the officer's actions, saying they were justified because Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, fired at the officers first that night. The male was holding a gun, arms extended, in a shooting stance. Walker argued he fired in self-defense, thinking someone was trying to break in. He says the officers never identified themselves, but the officers say they did. Just this week, a Kentucky judge permanently dismissed charges against Walker, who was initially accused of attempted murder for shooting at the officers. He's just supposed to say thank you and walk away. No, that there has to be a consequence. There has to be accountability. Accountability is key not only to people like Walker and Tamika Palmer. And they box us in. But to thousands of demonstrators, such as Pastor Timothy Finley, who protested over the past year, calling for police reforms in the wake of Taylor's death and the deaths of other African-Americans at the hands of police. When we think about March 13th now, it's, it's Breonna Taylor, not just remembering her name, but it's really become a rally 
rally call, a rally call for justice in our city, justice in our state. So as the pastor was mentioning, the resurgence of these murders being in the news, you know, is happening as there is also this painful, halting effort at police reform because of these murders. And there have been big efforts to make little changes. Like in Louisville, for example, the city council passed Brianna's law, which banned no-knock warrants. And in September, Taylor's family won a $12 million settlement from the city. Just last week, the Georgia House of Representatives voted to repeal a citizen's arrest law that really stems from the slavery era, which allows citizens arrest of any person, you know, believed to be committing a crime. And that kind of, you know, is related to the black codes that we were talking about last week. And so that was passed in Georgia. And last week I spoke to Maryland activists here who've seen their legislation watered down to keep a so-called law enforcement officer's bill of rights to eliminate that. And they've seen that watered down and they are going back to the drawing board. But it was very interesting. I wanted to say that when I spoke to one of the activists, Jonathan Hutto, he talked about how this whole year of activism after the murders is really important because it's been an education for activists and all those masses of people who came out to demonstrate that it was very important for people to go through the whole cycle to see what the system has to offer in terms of regess and in terms of justice. And if people see that the system does not provide justice, either in terms of the courts or in terms of legislation, then it helps people to understand that they need a new system, that the system as it exists will not serve us. I think that's an excellent point by Jonathan Hutto, and he's right. I mean, when you think about the fact that the people are demanding change over and over again, and when we think about even the things that we've talked about in this show, the massacre in Milai, nothing happened. The massacre in Haditha in Iraq, nothing happened. The, the massacre of the Blackwater mercenaries, nothing happened. The killing of Breonna Taylor, nothing happened. Rarely, occasionally, like in the case of Derek Chauvin, after massive tens of millions are protesting one cop who obviously murdered somebody in cold blood, George Floyd, he's on trial. But when you look at that whole scene, Walter, you come to a revolutionary conclusion that the system isn't reforming, that the efforts for reform by millions and millions of people are really very limited inside the system. And that's when people start to look for a different way of being, like a different society. They get to the root of the problem. They become radical people. And you are the in addition to being on this show, you're an editor of a radical website, Liberation News, a socialist website that's not just a website, it's also organizing for change and has the voice of many, many activists and organizers who are not only organizers and activists, they're also journalists, they're writers, they're analysts. I quoted earlier from a Liberation News article, and the headline is Top Pentagon Commander Requests Astronomical Sum of Money to Prepare for War with China. That's where we learned about the first island chain of missiles. Anyway, you have a newsletter that you bring out every Monday from Liberation News with some of the top stories. I want to just have you preview like what's in your newsletter. We're going to go out on this. And how can people find out about the newsletter? How can they subscribe? In addition to listening to this show, how do they get that news? 
Yeah, well, thanks, Brian. I mean, I absolutely encourage all of our listeners to visit liberationnews.org, liberationnews.org. Every day we update the site multiple times. We're going to bring you breaking news. We'll give you the latest, most important developments that transpire that day. We have features that analyze the big issues facing poor and working class people, the big issues in society. And we have reports. We have teams of reporters in cities and towns all across the country that highlight the local issues, the local struggles, the acts of resistance that never make it into the mainstream corporate news. And you're right, every Monday morning, there's a newsletter that goes out that brings you highlights from the past week's coverage on Liberation News, what you need to be up to date on what's going on in the world, the truth of what's going on in the world. Two articles that went out in this week's newsletter, for instance, there's one, I highly recommend people check this out. Lula's right to run for president of Brazil restored in major victory for people's movement. Lula, the wildly popular former president of Brazil, a left-wing person, progressive person, former trade union leader, was framed by the country's right-wing elites. But in a major surprise legal breakthrough, his right to run for president has been restored. And that means big trouble for the fascist president of Brazil, Bolsonaro. Another article that I really want to recommend, it's titled Stimulus and Struggle, Congress Shortchanges the Working Class. It's written by Eugene Perrier. And it's an analysis of this very complex stimulus bill, the quote-unquote American Rescue Plan, that was just passed by Congress. What's in it? What does it mean for working people? Who benefits? Who doesn't? And how does it stack up against the dire crisis facing working people and what needs to happen? So again, liberationnews.org, highly recommend everybody checking that out on a daily basis. Thank you, Walter. I'll tell our audience we're going to be back tomorrow with Professor Richard Wolf. We look every Wednesday with the big economic stories of the week from a socialist perspective with Professor Richard Wolf. And on Thursday, in the real story, we'll be talking about the Iraq war in depth with U.S. anti-war veteran, Iraq anti-war veteran, Mike Preisner. That will be an amazing series. So stay with us for the whole week. If you become a patron today or tomorrow too, you can join us in our conversation, our monthly conversation for patrons only. Again, show your support for the socialist program. You've been listening to the socialist program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.